This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss cybercrime or ransomware attacks against hospitals and other healthcare providers with Caleb Barlow, CEO of Synergist Tech. Mr. Barlow, welcome to the program. Hey, pleasure to be here, David. Mr. Barlow's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, computer or cybercrimes against healthcare providers, more of a hospital's, Disenable computer networks, holding them for ransom, frequently for a Bitcoin fee. The attacks have been prevalent since at least 2010. This past month, however, Universal Health Services, with over 400 locations over in the U.S., suffered a cyber attack disabling its company-wide computer network, causing some of its hospitals to revert to pen and paper record keeping. Also last month, the first known death resulted from a ransomware attack in Germany when a patient did not survive transfer to another hospital. Though a 2019 HHS report found between 2012 and 16, hospital deaths increased after ransomware attacks. Earlier this month, COVID-19 vac- a COVID-19 vaccine trial was delayed by a ransomware attack, or at least one. Likely the most costly ransomware attack was to the UK's National Health Service in 17 that amounted to an estimated 120 million in IT costs and lost productivity. Ransomware attacks are on the increase, especially amongst small hospitals, particularly vulnerable to phishing attacks, lasting upwards of two or more weeks because of their lean or inadequate security support. As Josephine Wolf noted in an October 17th New York Times editorial, quote-unquote, cybersecurity shortcomings in the healthcare sector need to be addressed now more than ever when medical care is increasingly being offered via remote online formats. In 2020, states introduced more than 280 cybersecurity-related bills, enacting several related to task forces or commissions training cybersecurity insurance and criminal penalties. The U.S. Senate and House passed seven cybersecurity bills, however, None specifically addressed the healthcare industry, and none became law. With me again to discuss healthcare cybersecurity is Synergist Tech CEO Caleb Barlow. So, uh, Caleb, with that as background, let's start with uh, some primer info. I've read these ransomware products, uh, in part, are titled or named WannaCry, Locky, Winplock, and CryptLocker. Uh, are some of these uh, known ransomware products. So my question is, how do these uh, encrypt clinical data and to what effect? So, so basically what's happening, if you look at a ransomware incident, is a, you know, a ne'er-do-well gets access to a network. And that could be as simple as grabbing somebody's credentials. You know, maybe you were on a retail site, used the same credentials you used at work, that retail site was compromised, and uh, there are many locations on the dark web that will sell compromised credentials. Or it could have been through a phishing attack. Once the bad guy is into the network, then there's two primary things that they're looking to do. The first is to move laterally. They want to get 
as much access across the network as they can. And there are a variety of tools that they'll deploy that will actually help them harvest additional credentials once they've got a beachhead on the network. In addition to harvesting new credentials and kind of moving lateral, or what we call lateral movement, the other thing they're going to do is to try to elevate their privilege. So going from maybe a, an administrator or you know, a, a nurse in triage and maybe getting access to their credentials, they're going to try to work their way up to a network administrator or someone that controls access to the whole domain. Once they've been able to get in and move their tentacles around the organization, then they're going to deploy their payload, which is one of several of the tools that you mentioned that will allow them to then lock things up. And effectively, what these tools are is they're cryptographic tools, and they basically take the entire hard drive of the device, scramble it, and lock it up with a cryptographic key. Now, what we've seen of late is the bad guys oftentimes insert a new step just before scrambling the data and locking it all up in that they exfiltrate a lot of it. And they're using that to increase their chances of getting paid by potentially threatening to extort uh, the organization by releasing that data if they don't pay the ransom. Okay, uh, thank you. So I, I, in my reading, it, it's uncertain, so I'll ask you this question. What's your understanding of how frequently uh, is this occurring in the healthcare sector? Oh, it's every day. Uh, I mean, it's literally every single day. Because you've got to remember, what you read about in the news is only a very small fraction mm -hmm. of what's actually going on, even though, technically speaking, a ransomware incident is, at least as far as I'm concerned, a reportable incident. Um, because you've got to remember, if the bad guy had enough access to lock up your data, they had the same level of access needed to read the data, and they actually, in many cases, had the same level of access needed to change the data. So the problem is you've actually lost control of that system when you've had a ransomware incident. All right, so that was, that was a question I did have. Other than possibly making this data public, and you know, healthcare data is, 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 is confidential, proprietary, of course, what do they typically do with this data other than hold it hostage? Well, remember, this is a organized crime. It is a volume organization. You're dealing with a human on the other end. And that human is organized, right? You're not the only target. They're targeting dozens of organizations at the same time. In many cases, they're teams of 20 or 30 individuals. And, you know, there's a breakdown on that team. There's a project manager. There's a boss. There's people that are responsible for getting access. There's people that are responsible for moving laterally. People that are responsible for elevating credentials. And people are responsible for negotiating once you've locked up a system. But, you know, when this stuff started years ago, it wasn't uncommon to see a $500 ransom. And, you know, honestly, the recommendation from most security professionals, including myself, was just to pay it. And, you know, in most cases, you'd see that data get unlocked or you'd at least be given a key. And uh, you'd be on your merry way. Now, you know, it still meant your environment was compromised. But what's happened is, you know, companies in some cases have started to push back. The bad guys have gotten smarter about realizing what they're into. You know, it used to be they didn't care. They just send over the request for $500. If they got paid, they moved on. If they didn't, they just moved on to the next guy. Um, now you're seeing scenarios where ransom payments could be in the millions. They absolutely understand what environment they're in. They're reading the news. They're watching to see what's happening. And of course, what's particularly interesting about healthcare is it has a kinetic impact, right? 
the bad guys are seeing the news reports that, hey, patients are being diverted. They understand that that has both a reputational issue uh, as well as a patient care issue, and that's only going to increase the likelihood that they may get paid. And as companies continue to push back, they've added a new step in this, which is, hey, if you don't pay, we're going to extort you by releasing the data. And I think there's another step here which hasn't yet happened in healthcare, uh, but is absolutely coming, which is the bad guys go in and rather than extorting the data, if they really want to cause harm, they'll start changing data. And the problem in most systems is if you don't have the security and privacy controls in place to prevent someone from coming in and attacking with ransomware, you definitely don't have the controls in place to know what data they changed. Okay. I was going to ask you how lucrative, but you answered that by saying this could be very lucrative for, again, um, uh, the bad guys. Let me go. Uh, go well, the, the question I ask CEOs and CISOs all the time in healthcare and in other industries, can you get a half a million dollars in Bitcoin by three o'clock this afternoon? And I'm dead serious when I ask that question. You know, the, the point here is not asking that in jest. It's to say, look, you need the run books, the playbooks, the decision-making process to understand if you're impacted by this, what are you going to do? How are you going to process through that? And what are going to be the situations in which you pay, in which you negotiate, or which you don't? The wrong answer, which I hear often, is, oh, well, we're just going to call our cyber insurance company because more and more it's unlikely the cyber insurance company is going to be able to pay that ransom. In fact, let's get to, the, uh, let's get to this insurance uh, issue. So you've been quoted as stating the prevalence of cyber attacks constitute, you, you've noted, an existential threat for healthcare organizations because healthcare organizations have not adapted to the pace of change. And you've noted as well, ransomware insurance can frequently be no longer affordable. So let's go to the, other than your response to this attack, what are remedies or mitigation uh, to prevent or what can hospitals practically do uh, to prevent becoming victims? Well, you know, the, the first thing to recognize is that insurance is no longer a plan uh, because, you know, historically, I think a lot of people use that as a crutch. They lean on their insurance carrier. But, you know, what's very recently happened, in fact, just in the last couple of weeks, is the U.S. Treasury Department has issued new guidance out of OFAC basically indicating that, look, we're going to sanction some of these ransomware gangs, just like you'd sanction a country. Well, what that effectively does is it criminalizes paying them a ransom. So, you know, the, the problem you're going to have here now is depending on who locked you up with ransomware, you may or may not be allowed to pay them. And you're certainly going to have to facilitate any ransomware payment through the U.S. government or working with the U.S. government. So that adds a whole level of additional complexity that just wasn't in the system three or four weeks ago. But let's, let's talk about prevention, because at the end of the day, prevention is going to be a whole lot cheaper than the mm -hmm. cure. And the, the first thing you've got to do is you've really got to get an outside security assessment to look specifically at ransomware and say, how susceptible are we to this? And unfortunately, you know, there's kind of three big things you've got to do. First of all, is your network segmented? You know, and it, it's, it's not uncommon at all, particularly in healthcare, to see very flat networks where, you know, the academic medical center is on the same network as the university. And, and that's a really big problem if that's the case. Because that means that once ransomware's got a beachhead, it spreads to everything, and it spreads to everything immediately. 
The second thing is you've got to have tools in place to prevent lateral movement or privilege escalation. And the big thing there is having multi-factor authentication on everything. It, you know, simple test. If you can log into anything at work without having a multi-factor token, either something you wear or your phone, you got a problem. I mean, you know, it's so easy to crack a password now with brute force. You have to have multi-factor authentication in place. And the third thing is having some form of endpoint protection. And I'm not talking about antivirus. We're talking about, you know, tools that go into the trade names of things like CrowdStrike and Carbon Black and um, Silence, you know, these much more sophisticated tools that are sitting on the endpoint and looking specifically for the behaviors that would be exhibited by ransomware. Okay, I do want to add this related question. So we've been talking about providers, and of course hospitals are big targets for the obvious reason. But there's also ransomware attack on medical devices. I haven't seen a great deal of literature on that. But my understanding is if you're wearing an implantable device, it can be hacked, correct? Well, I think they can be hacked. Look, if it, can, if it touches the Internet or, you know, frankly has a way to connect to another computer, it can be hacked. I think, you know, there's two ways to look at this. So, you know, everybody likes to talk about medical devices because it gets into kind of the exotic realm of, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of harm could I do if I impacted a pacemaker or a defibrillator or something like that. And those things are absolutely technically in the art of the possible. But keep in mind, bad guys are financially motivated mm -hmm. adversaries. And they're going to go after what's the easiest target. And the smartest game for them right now is to lock up a hospital with ransomware, demand a large payment, because odds are, more than half of the time, they're going to get paid. Now, as things start to slow down there, as hospitals and other providers up their defenses, they too will up their forms of attack and go after the next most likely thing where they're gonna get paid. And again, I can't underscore this enough, the biggest threat we see in hospital systems is not even locking up the data, it's not extorting it, it's changing it. Because the minute you change the data, you can't trust anything in that system. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I, per your mention of uh, the Treasury Department, I did actually read, um, this was October 1, the Department of Treasury Office of Terrorism Financial Intelligence issued a pair of advisories and where they say um, that these advisories, as you noted or suggested, may have implications for persons involved in facilitating ransomware payments. Yeah. Uh, I found that interestingly vague, but to your point, there seems to certainly suggest there's a prohibition on making these. But beyond whether... Well, I wouldn't say it's vague at all, sitting in my seat, right? Okay. You've got to remember there's an entire industry that grew up around incident response about helping people prepare for their worst day, and then if it occurred, helping people through it. I mean, there are entire companies that are built around the concept of helping you negotiate and pay one of these individuals. However, you know, what's happened here, I think, is, you know, especially in the legislative front, there's been a growing groundswell to really start to ask the question, should we pay a ransom? And you know, when these ransoms were a few thousand dollars, even a few tens of thousands of dollars, I think we all kind of looked at it and said, you know what, just pay it. Pay it. It's good insurance. If you can't get it unlocked, if you don't have good backups, move on from there, right? It was 
frankly, more of an annoyance than it was a real problem. Mm -hmm. Now that the ransoms are in the hundreds of thousands or more likely in the millions of dollars, now we have a different type of problem, right? This is financially significant to these institutions. It's financially significant to the bad guy because you have to remember, every time you pay one of these million-dollar ransoms, you're just fueling hundreds more attacks on your peers. Sure. So governments around the world, policymakers are starting to say, wait a second, maybe enough is enough. Because fundamentally, the only way we are going to stop this is to change the economics for the bad guys. And what that means is if we stop paying, then it's not lucrative to attack because you're not going to get paid. And governments are starting to step in to say, well, maybe we need a timeout on this. And yes, what does that mean? It means some institutions are going to go insolvent because they're going to get locked up with ransomware. They're going to be barred from paying. And we've actually already seen this happen in healthcare and some smaller practices. Um, I think the Treasury Department is exercising their muscle in a very bold way here. It's actually, you know, the, the policy wonk side of me is absolutely fascinated by this because they're coming at it in two ways. One, they're using existing laws around sanctioned entities, and they're just sanctioning the ram ransomware operators. But the second thing they're doing is they're going to those companies that were involved in these response and negotiation efforts to say, wait a second, if you're in the business of helping to move this money, then you're in the business of helping to move money. And therefore, there's a whole slew of U.S. government regulations that you now need to be compliant with. So in a sense, they're aiding and abetting the criminal. Uh, your word's not mine, but yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty close to the mark. Okay. Um so just out of curiosity. And, and don't get me wrong. I've been part of that industry for years, right? <laughs> so I look at this. I don't look at this as if these are bad guys involved in doing something wrong. In fact, in a lot of ways, these have been the frontline heroes of this. But we're going to have to make a change mm -hmm. if we're going to stop this. Okay. Fair enough, certainly. I mean, we have – the provider certainly needs to get to resolution because, of course – your patient safety, as I suggested, uh, or actual patient safety issues here. Let, let me, I'm forced to ask this question. So this occurs, it's resolved, uh, whether it's pay, whatever amount is paid or however it's resolved. What, uh, what technology, if any, exists such that uh, these, these bad guys can be traced or found out? Well, there are things that can be done. That is, the success rate is very limited. Um, you know, there are situations where governments may have access to decryption keys, and I have seen situations where occasionally those will be provided to victims. Uh, usually that's done very secretively because um, you don't want to be in a scenario where the bad guys know that government has access to their tools. Um, and frankly, you probably don't even want to know how government got, got those descriptors. But, you know, those situations are out there. There are also situations where private entities have figured out how to decrypt certain variants of malware. Um, the, you got to remember, most of these bad guys sit in countries around the world where even if you can identify who they are, they're, they're outside the reach of U.S. extradition treaties. Um, so in many cases, we know exactly who these people are, literally down to the individual, the team, how they're organized. I mean, what time they get up in the morning, what they do, how they negotiate, uh, doesn't matter. They're, again, they're outside the reach of Western law enforcement, which really brings me back to the key point, which is, again, the only way we're going to change this in aggregate 
is by improving our defenses and changing the economics, uh, which ultimately means we've really got to start thinking about as a society, is it time to potentially outlaw paying ransoms? And, and there's a, that's a tough conversation. There's a lot of pros and cons to it, but it's the only thing that's going to really fix mm -hmm. this in the long term. Relative to, in, in reading the in my review of the literature, a lot of these um, efforts, you'll see countries identified, and not surprising, you'll see North Korea mentioned, Russia, and uh, Iran uh, mm -hmm. are mentioned. Let's go. Let's go to uh, policies. I mentioned in the intro that um, the Congress has, through this decade. Uh, and has passed some legislation, not this, to my uh, study, not this past 116th session, but has passed legislation and continues to propose bills um, to greater or lesser extent of, of success. Uh, but relative to what federal policymakers can or should do uh, to protect health care providers, there are so these general discussions you see relative to sanctions, you mentioned sanctioning countries because we don't necessarily have extradition. And then, of course, the classic levers are uh, federal funding to help support uh, the, the uh, industry or industry's efforts. And then, of course, there's always, per the uh, uh, Treasury Department's um, announcement, there's, of course, regulatory, increased regulatory oversight. Um, but what would you say would be the most effective uh, ways to get at um, addressing this issue through federal policy? Well, the, the challenge that I think you have with government and regulations in general it, when we talk about cybersecurity is no one wants to be seen in the realm of punishing the victim, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's where all of this becomes so difficult. I mean, if you look at the 52 breach, different breach disclosure laws in the United States, most of them talk about notifying government. They don't necessarily mandate specific security practices or frameworks that have to be in place. That's starting to change. And I think ransomware is a very unique difference versus most cyber attacks. And a few of your listeners are probably going to cringe a bit when I say this, but there are absolutely victims of cyber attacks. But when we look at ransomware specifically, there are incredibly few cases where ransomware is not absolutely avoidable. Almost always when you see a ransomware incident that is a direct indicator that the company that was victimized by this did not invest in the basic principles of network segmentation, multi-factor authentication, and endpoint protection. In almost every case, one or multiple of those factors are missing, and they're kind of basic security principles nowadays. So what you see here, again, specific to ransomware, is policymakers are flexing their muscles a bit more because in this particular variant of a cyber attack, oftentimes the victim is guilty of not putting in place sound security practices. And in fact, you know, my company, Synergistic, we went out and, you know, we – do uh, security assessments in a thousand different locations in hospitals around the U.S. And we found that, and this is very recent data, only 44% of healthcare institutions meet the minimum standards set by the National Institute of Standards from, from their security posture. You know, the, there's such a technical debt 
here in terms of the security posture of America's hospitals. And, of course, it's only made worse by COVID. We've got to do some catching up. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I do think there's promise there. There are some systems that are really leaning in and getting sophisticated on this. And fundamentally, I think what we've got to look at is, you know, as our healthcare system has evolved, we've started to realize that our doctors are responsible not only for our physical health, they're responsible for our mental health, but you know, the next step in this is our physicians and clinicians have also got to be responsible to a large degree for our digital health because they're probably one of the biggest participants in our digital health, mm-hmm. especially as we see interoperability. You know, everything we do is interconnected with who we are, our healthcare records, and our physicians have a big role in that. And most importantly, if they can't protect that data, then they're not doing us any good. I mean, the last thing you want to do is go to the hospital. Maybe you don't come home with an infection, but you go home, come home with identity theft. You know, this, this last point, and this, this will uh, maybe my last question, and that is uh, you're probably well aware. Uh, so the Department of Health and Human Services has an Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and there's been a push, uh, obviously, in monies uh, under the 2008 ARA, HIT, et cetera, to uh, subsidize hospitals to ad- adopt HIT. Um, and there, there's now what's termed, or has been what's termed, certified. You have to be certified, have a cert- certified elect- electronic uh, re- uh, records technology to get reimbursed under Medicare um, and to participate, to be reimbursed and participate in certain payment programs under Medicare. And they have included in them some security uh, regulatory um, requirements. My my guess is, other than getting ex- ex- excessively weedy here, is that you would argue, um, to the extent that the federal government requires um, hospitals to uh, have cert- use certified electronic health records, that the security aspect of that needs to be uh, uh, improved or enhanced. You, you would agree? Well, I mean, the regulations are there today. The question is, are people working to conform or to exceed those regulations today? And oftentimes the answer to that is no. They're Mm -hmm. doing the minimum. But here's where I think this gets more interesting. You have to look, open the aperture up even beyond healthcare and look at the regulatory format relative to security and privacy. You know, incredible increases in regulations around the world. You know, GDPR in particular is, you know, a big step on the privacy front in terms of where regulators are headed. But I think the most fascinating thing to look at is in another highly bureaucratic industry that is also heavily regulated that no one would have believed could start putting in place security regulations with teeth. And that's U.S. government procurement. Like, I mean, you know, if you think about what organizations are going to be slow to move, mm-hmm. I think most people would tend to agree with me somewhat sarcastically that U.S. government procurement would probably be on the bottom of the list. What they're doing with a new program called CMMC is revolutionary. They're going to go out and require military contractors, even if you're the contractor that, you know, mows the lawn at a military base or does the catering you're going to have to subscribe to a minimum set of security standards. They're going to have to be validated by a third-party assessor. And if you don't meet the minimum standards for the level of contract, 
you're not going to win that contract. Hard stop. So, you know, what I would encourage people to do is look at what's happening in other places right now. And again, this is a great example because, again, I say this sarcastically, who thought military procurement could go there? But let's flip it around the other way. If military procurement can pull this off, mm-hmm. then so too can every other industry. And that, I think, is the real message of what's coming. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, this sort of whirlwind, quick overview of the subject. I'm sure there's a lot more substance or details here. Um, but but thank you, Caleb, for, for this overview. Uh, very helpful. We'll have to... Uh, I'd like to revisit this down the road if I could and see where we see where this evolves. Absolutely, David. I appreciate your time on the show today. Okay, thank you again. You take care. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.